Welcome to Dad Static, episode 48. Today, we have a special guest with an interview with author Adam B. Coleman, the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. Adam uh, B. Coleman is a uh, black man, uh, was raised by a single mom, barely knew his dad, um, um, was raised in sort of a, uh, along the same lines, and he'll explain this to you as a, as a victim coming up. And then as time went on, as he grew and he educated himself, he started to see uh, that he was a victor. And he just had to go out and search for it and work hard for it. Um, and these are his words right here. Black Americans are constantly lied to about the source of their community's issues in an effort to profit off their pain and to make sure that they never leave the mindset of the victim. In order to move forward in American society, black people must be critical of all sectors of black culture and the people that profit off the mainstream black victim messaging. I believe that with honesty, love, ownership, and responsibility, black Americans can leave behind the victim mentality for the truly empowering victor mindset. Once victorhood is embraced, we can achieve a more peaceful union with the rest of American society and stop stop accepting conflict within the black community as a normality. Hope you enjoy this time with Adam B. Coleman, author of Black Victim to Black Victor, where he goes over and we discuss um, some very difficult truths that so, so many, I think, agree with, but are scared to talk about. Enjoy. Uh, welcome, Adam. I thank you so much for being here with me. Um, this is Dad Static. Um, Dad Static's a goofy little thing we came up with. Me and my, my wife and I, we have four girls. Uh, I don't know if you've ever driven somewhere before and found a station that you liked and you really liked the song and you're driving mm-hmm. and you're starting to run away the, from the signal. And oh, yeah. I'm that dad who's like, oh, I got it. I can still I can still hear it. And my, my kid's like, Dad, you're dumb. What are you doing? So, so, and I was like, you know, we're going to make some noise. And that's why we're here today. Dad Static is about speaking the truth, which is what you're doing. Although you're really speaking the truth. A lot of people um, agree with, but are scared to death to say it. So, yeah. Adam, I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Maybe take a minute or two. Tell us how you got started uh, into, hey, hey, you know what? You know, I, I need to do this. I need to speak out. I need to. Uh, share with the world what's going on, what so many of us agree with, probably, but are scared to say. So the floor is yours, and we'll uh, we'll talk about your book as we get into it, too. Go ahead. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm a culture war junkie. I've been paying attention to politics for a number of years, but specifically the culture wars um, before, um, before the death of George Floyd, especially. Um, and, you know, I basically just kept to myself. I had no online presence uh, other than just a Facebook account to talk to relatives and friends. Um, I kept my personal views to myself and just, you know, reflected on a lot of things, just watched the world around me. Um, but everything for me changed with George Floyd, not in the sense of uh, how other people might see it. Like, this is this racial, uh, re- um, racial reckoning that we need to all of a sudden adhere to and have the race talk and and have basically public panic attacks. Um, right. Forgetting that, you know, this one incident 
doesn't mean that your life before was horrendous or something is changing all of a sudden. Um, And so in many ways, I wanted to write the book as a way to express myself and to contribute to the conversation rather than allowing the media or other pundits to speak for me. Um, Because it felt like the media had their own agenda. Um, They essentialized my race. They essentialized my identity by saying that I only care about certain things and I'm in constant danger. And as someone who's lived in multiple states, different different types of areas, um, different ethnic populations, uh, even predominantly white areas, I never felt what they were talking about. Right. Um, you know, have I dealt with um, being uncomfortable or or even even something direct? Sure. But that was extremely rare. Um, the vast majority of my encounters with people have been overwhelmingly positive. So, you know, this idea that all of a sudden America is this uh, white supremacist society and this is a mainstream thing, um, I found to be extremely manipulative. Um, again, a manipulative against black people and also against white people as well. Um, and it's just used as a way to divide people. And I, I wanted to highlight in the book, which you read, that you know we have far more in common than we do have different. And this idea of, you know, it's one thing to notice race. Obviously, you can tell my race is different than yours, or our skin looks different, right? But these are just features. It's no different than noticing someone else's eye color. It's all pigmentation. So why should that be the determination as to how i treat you right yeah i agree that you know you you're an inspiration for me i mean i'm not as an avid reader as i should be um i have a daughter i have a couple of daughters they're all you know they do their own thing they're you know they get super smart they run circles around me but i have um one of them in particular really just taking to reading she's really into she's done lord of the rings and narnia she just keeps rolling uh, blue house of the prairie you name it. And I'm so proud of her. She just really gets into it and gets into that world. So you inspired me. I, I'm just sounds how I discovered you. I don't think I mm-hmm. told you this, but I discovered you from an article in the Federalist. You wrote an article. Essentially, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You were defending Tony Dungy and Tony Dungy was speaking. And I've heard Tony Dungy talk about this before because he's worked on a lot of different programs. Um, you were um, about fatherhood uh in in the just a black community the lack of fathers and i think that's what you were kind of coming to his defense on and that seems to be a, a very uh dividing issue for some reason or at least the media wants to make it that way or or um i don't know if it's just i'll be honest with you the you could say you you probably probably read this in your book but there's a lot of race hucksters out there that are playing games and you and I both. It's funny, you know. I saw this thing on CBS Good Morning, the news thing, which before the pandemic, I used to watch it all the time. I love these great human interest stories. What's Tina Turner doing in France? What's Sting up to? Whatever. <laughs> and um, love, I love it, man. It doesn't matter. Like this, whatever. You know, I think it's awesome. Well, you know, all these great stories, but it's just like things change with the whole pandemic, and it's just like it went a little wacky. And um, I don't really understand what's going on with it, but. Um, uh, you know, Tony Dungy, I've known for a long time. I, mean, I know he lost his own son, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I believe I'm not the, sure. It may have been the suicide. I believe he did, his adult son. Mm-hmm. This is a number of years ago. 
but you know, this guy, I know what it was. I was, I just lost my thought cause I'm 51 and I can't think straight sometimes. So, poor kid. so anyway, um, I saw, you probably heard of these guys I don't remember the name, but there was all these fathers. I think it was in Detroit. It was the beginning of the school year, a couple of years ago. They had all these fights at this school and you might remember the name of it, but it was all these dads that had local community in Detroit. I believe all these, there was uh, black fathers came together and they were just hanging out around the school just to be a positive influence. You know what I'm talking about? You remember what they were? That called? was actually, that was actually in Louisiana. Oh, it was Louisiana, but you know, I'm, yeah, you know what I'm referring to. And yeah. I remember seeing that. I think it was before the pandemic, or I call it the pandemic. Before then, they um, talked about how such a great story it was. And I remember going, oh, my gosh, that is so brilliant. This guy, this is, mm-hmm. you know, I never heard another word about it again. It's almost like that's the kind of thing that I would think the people who are being so divisive, they don't want that. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. But that's how I discovered it was through the Tony Dungy article. And maybe you can comment on that because the things like that, those dads who are coming in there. And all the kids had such amazing things to say about these dads, but I don't hear about it. it seemed like that would be a great um, recipe around the country just to help out so many communities. But anyway, I was yeah. just going to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, basically, I think there's an imbalance in our society. I think feminism has taken hold of uh, the psyche of men and women. Right. Um And there is no balance. So I'm not even, you know, you read the chapter about feminism, but I'm not anti-woman, I'm not a misogynist or anything like that. If it was the inverse, if it was an influx of single dads and the moms have disappeared, I'd be highly concerned about that too. Um, I think we need a balance within our homes and, and within society. And the male perspective is extremely important. You can't quantify... And you know this as a father. Yeah. You can't quantify the interaction between a father figure and a child, whether it's a boy or a girl. It's right. different than a mother. And it right. doesn't mean that the role as a father is better. When we talk about fathers are missing, we're not saying that the father missing, it's it's important because he's better than the mother. It's right. missing because it's, it's like uh, if you only have one arm, but you're supposed to have two. It's right. it's something, you know, it, it's something that's natural. You're supposed to have both, um, and it provides it provides an, an equal line of respect when it comes to the raising. There are things that um, my son's mother does better than I do, and right. vice versa. But we're supposed to balance each other out, and that's that's the dynamic between men and women. I, I think is missing, you know. So when we talk about raising families or even like hot topics like abortion right they're specifically saying men you are not allowed to have this conversation but it's our child too you know and why can't we discuss it and and i think it's this it's this dangerous assumption that men are um i guess irreverent when it comes to children especially their own children so, like, we can just take it or leave it. You want to kill the baby? Kill the baby. I don't care. And and we've allowed these, the bad guys, the guys who didn't actually want to be fathers, right, uh, the guys who don't really care, we've allowed them to be the figurehead of the average man. When the average man is just like me and you, who has children, who does care how they do, and... Um, we care very highly about how they turn out, 
and what what we were able to provide for them outside of money. Um, and so I, I think a lot of our discussion when we talk about parenting, it's reduced to uh, giving birth and what men can provide monetarily. And both provide so much more than that. Uh, but I, I think we become very reductionist when it comes to how men and women uh, interact with each other and interact with their children. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. You had a quote. I was trying to write some quotes down. And it goes along with this one. You said the greatest privilege in America is not being white, is having a healthy mother and father in the home. Absolutely. I think that's an amazing quote because it's true. And uh, uh, and I think sometimes as, as, a, as a white guy, it, we I think a lot very much alike and a lot of not just white, white and black men and women who are trying to do the best thing, best for their family, trying to raise their family, trying to work hard. They all believe that they all feel that way. But the media is trying to be so divisive. They want to make it seem like that's not how it is. It is, a, you know, it's a, and it's just a, it is amazing the way the divisiveness works. I don't know if it's just a it's a money. It's a money thing. You keep, keep control over a certain entity or a certain group. And then the more control you have over them, you feed that lie. Um, I, don't know, I don't know. You certainly could speak to it certainly better than me. I know you grew up in a, a single home and you in, in your growing up, you were not thinking the way you do now. You think much more to or to at least I would say you're conservative, but you definitely think more to the right than you certainly do what you did growing up. And and what, what kind of opened your eyes to that as you're as you're growing up as uh, you know, I know you're uh, you grew up in a single with a single mom. And, um, and what was that like for you? And what really I, I mean, I know what it was like. I know it was very, very difficult. But what kind of what, what was the light that came on for you that made, that made you go, OK, something's not right here. Um, About the way the media I'll, portrays things, I guess. I've I've always had that sense. I, I've. One thing about me, politically, I've evolved to a degree about certain things, maybe socially, but the topic of race, I've been pretty consistent throughout my entire life. Um, I've always had white friends, I've had black friends, I've just befriended people that I liked. That was about it. Um, And so my viewpoints on race never really changed, but I started opening my eyes in regards to the manipulation of race, probably right. years ago, um, I started realizing that certain people, let's say politicians, pop up every four years, and you know, go on hip hop stations and say, "Yeah, I'm hip and jiving, I'm down with it," and then they disappear, and then show up four years later. Um, yeah, Joe Ma- Joe Biden and Nicki Minaj, right? Is that the one I remember from yeah. the last time? Yeah, just completely tone deaf. Joe Biden in that whole situation. I don't don't understand that at all. It was a, it was a, yeah. it was it was it was laughable. It was so bad. Yeah, I mean, if if anybody was to watch that interview, Joe Biden, I'm like I would put money on that. He doesn't really know who Cardi B is. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was Cardi B. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, so I'm I. It's it's just basically the racial pandering is something that I became more and more aware of politically. Right. Um, but then I also started analyzing how certain people make certain claims and there's not much to back it up, um, especially like I have a really big pet peeve when it comes to elitists. I don't like elitists. I don't like elitist mentality. And an elitist is someone 
who automatically thinks they know more than you, who thinks they're better than you. And it's not even necessarily monetarily, but let's say the wealthy elitists um, who are basically telling the average black person that there is this system that's put into place to keep you from getting ahead. Oh, right. me? I snuck through the, the cracks, you know, it, it, but it can't happen to you, right? It, it's that gatekeeping. It's the gatekeeping mentality. And whether they realize it or not, they're advocating for people to feel like they're stuck in society when most millionaires weren't born millionaires within our country. And and I, I you know I hate how we talk about wealth, where they talk about generational wealth. Like that's not really a thing. Like your father could be wealthy, you get some of that money and you can squander it away. Like it Absolutely. you have to know how to retain wealth, right? Uh, you know, we know lottery winners who, who win a, a boatload of money and then they blow it away in less than a lifetime. So, exactly. you know, you have to understand how wealth works and all these other things. So, but basically, I just couldn't take, especially after the George Floyd uh, uh, riots and everything that was going on, I couldn't take people like LeBron James saying that police wake up on the wrong side of bed and may want to go out and shoot a black person. As if that's a thing. And with the cognitive dissidence to see that he is escorted by the police on a daily basis to arenas around the country. So I, I would venture to say he's not really that afraid of police. Right. No, I, would, I would have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> I, and he's, you know, he's, you made one good example about that. And, um, and it's hard to say, you know, it's, you know, I know you're not being invited on MSNBC to tell your views, obviously, because they don't want to have any dialogue or any kind of debate whatsoever. We know that. Um, but when you refer to that, I think of, um, you know, um, they take, you know, the media takes one thing and they, and not to say there aren't some, we all know there's bad people in every walk of life. Of course there is. Uh, there's yeah. bad police. It's a very stressful, very, very tough job. Um, but they spend one, we know the stats, you could, you could really spew them off to me, the statistics on uh, crimes based on race, and it is not what the media makes it out to be. And uh, we know that. And I, um, and you, one thing comes to mind, I can't remember when this was, it was last year, I think it was during the riots, it was stuff going on last summer. And Maxine, mm -hmm. Water, Maxine Waters steps up and starts saying, like, you should be out in the street, she should be doing this. And she's just no different than LeBron James. She's somebody that came through the cracks, I guess, is what she would say. But yeah. she's a multimillionaire now. I'm sure she has some homes. She keeps getting reelected out in California, and she does nothing to help the people in her community whatsoever. No different than Pelosi, whatever it may be. But they play these games and this divisiveness to say, hey, look who's coming after you. And it's really the finger should be pointing back to the person who's saying it, because I think that's generally what's going on. There was. There was one thing, it was another one I wrote in here now. Um, and yeah, I think these people, Maxine Waters, LeBron, on down the road, and others, other liberal elitists, and many of them are white, liberal elite whites mm -hmm. that are pandering. Uh, one quote you said, we are, when we are angry, we excuse destruction. Why does it work that way? Why do you think that is, too? And I'm sure this ties back into what we're talking about, but everybody saw that, and um, whether it be during the, um, George Floyd, it was years before, and... Uh, out in Missouri, you know, that, uh, the hell hands up thing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, what, what, it, you know, it's just like the destruction is destroying 
the very neighborhood they're saying they're trying to uphold or protect or why does that continue to happen? Is it is it just is it just the media is just so uh, just making this up so much or is it just that they just figure enough people are dumb enough to continue to believe this narrative? Well, I think some of it is not not necessarily just the, the media is doing. Um, so George Floyd's situation, you know, it became not even just a national story, but a world a world story. I know people in other countries um, who talk about George Floyd murals in Germany and in the UK. Um, so that that is a little bit different, but I think that the the media they amplify the problem. Uh, you know, they don't show up with fire extinguishers. They show up with accelerants. And so they want to, they, you know, as long as the cameras keep rolling, eyeballs are there and advertisers keep paying, then they keep making more money. Ultimately, I think most of this comes down to money and power. Um, and and damn if anybody gets hurt or anything like that, if someone gets hurt, it's a story more money and more power um you know and this is part of the problem with much of corporate media they have become sensationalized they they care about sensational content we don't have investigative journalism anymore and if it is investigative journalism it's coming from independent sources um and they're not nearly as promoted um or they might even be smeared as not being quote-unquote legitimate so um I, but to kind of get back to a little bit of what you're saying, you know, why is it okay for us to be destructive? And I think it's the bigotry of low expectations. It's expected. It's okay. To the point where I remember during the riots in Philadelphia, after, I can't remember the guy's name, um, he was shot by the police after he was chasing the, the cops with the machete. Um, and he got close enough and they shot him, there were riots there. And the police just said, we'll let him have it. You know, damn the destruction. Yeah. And, you know, I think some people think, let them just get it out of their system. And then what ends up also happening, too, is uh, people who are troublemakers not from that community take advantage of this situation. So it becomes a domino effect. Um, you know, we can we know by arrest records, like in New York, there are people from all over the country who are being arrested. Right. Same thing in, in Minnesota and all over the place. Um, yeah. hey, being paid to go to these different places and cause trouble. And then you know, who knows even who's paying, who's funneling money, you know, but they're the same actors, same players seem to be involved in these different cities. Sometimes, and sometimes it's just it's just opportunists, like in um, uh, what's the in Kenosha, the riots in Kenosha. There were a lot of people from Chicago that were there. There's you know, they're just coming in, and hey, let's let's get involved. Let's you know break into this place. Let's take this. Let's start fires. Let's cause chaos. Um, so you know, this is also the part of the problem that of politics entering the mold when it came to those riot situations. Kenosha could have been prevented. Kyle Rittenhouse situation could have been prevented. They refuse to accept uh, Donald Trump's um, uh, National Guard invitation. 
But Donald Trump's out of the office, Joe Biden's in office, Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted. They were afraid of riots. What did they do? Immediately accepted the National Guard. There you go. So this is this is pure politics. And and people got killed because of it. Oh, innocent, many innocent people were died. I, I don't think it was, I don't know if it was Kenosha. It could have been Kenosha. Um, I think it was after George Floyd. It was the uh, a black security guard, older gentleman. Uh, his name is David something, I believe. He was just trying to protect someone's property and he was killed. And made, national media barely made a blip on the radar about it because it didn't match their narrative, I guess. And um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about. Yeah, I can't he was just a just family man, um, was just trying to protect some. He was a security guard trying to protect some property, doing the right thing. And it, like you said, it didn't it didn't match the narrative that they, I guess they were shooting for for the divisiveness. Um, much like you know, trying to get strong fathers in the schools to help out because it just it's just it is it is strange how how that is. And you you struck a nerve and and you encouraged me to start reading books. I, I mean, really, this is pretty pathetic as an old guy like me. I should be reading a lot more, but. When I saw that and I started this podcast, I was like, I'm going to I'm going to rant or I'm going to do this. I'm just going to talk about different things that you, know, you and I probably mostly agree on in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. I was like, I think I need to know what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to and you were the first one. I said, you know what? You got a book. I'm going to read it. I'm going to tell him I'm not going to interview him until I read it. So I'm not going to sit here and go, hey, uh, yeah, Adam, I'm going to read it sometime. Now I'm not doing that. So I'm going to try to read as much as I can. And I, I even got a couple other books lined up. Uh, a book by a guy named Douglas Murray. Have you heard of Douglas Murray before? Yep. Yeah, I got his, was it Madness of Crowds? I just started that. So I'm trying to, and you probably, have you read some of his books before? I think it was Madness of Crowds. I had the audio book for it. Yeah, he's got a new one now. I can't remember what it's called. He was talking about it on some podcast. But um, yeah. I was going to go back through. There's a couple of things I want to touch base on. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, this was one right here. I'm gonna, I was in the book. I was going to read it. It was on 127 here. It was talking about generation it's about um abusers it says uh, you were talking about um i guess this is just i'm gonna quote this for you real quick imagine there's a room with two women one woman was physically assaulted by her husband for years and the other woman is her psychologist psychologist she describes tales of narrowly escaping death and how he has left her feeling scared to be around men what if the psychologist said men are dangerous never trust any men and you should never forget that he did what he did to you because your abuse you experienced is what you will constantly experience from all men. And then down below, you said, for the sake of this analogy, black Americans are the abused woman. Then the liberals amongst us are the psychologists committing the malpractice. Tell us about that just a little bit. I think we may have touched on it a little bit, but I think yeah. I know I'm pretty sure I know where you're going with that. Go ahead. Yeah, basically, when you tell people to never forget never forget what happened, um, and to constantly essentialize any bad action that happens today as to being the bad action that happened in the past. Not even just recent past, but the far distant past, well well before um, any of us were born. That is abusive. I mean, because you're not helping someone to see clearly and move past things. You know, if we were to look at something like um, like Israel and Palestine, you know, right. the feud that's been going on there for, well, you know, hundreds of years, like that is generational repeating 
of hatred between each other, of conflict between each other. In the preaching, one generation comes in and tells the stories of the previous generation, and and so on and so forth. And it just continues the animosity and continues the hatred. Right. And we're seeing that, granted, on a smaller level because we're not literally at war, but it is something that remains in, in many people's psyche. As soon as they have a negative experience, or not even a negative experience, I was just actually sharing something. Um, a woman, <laughs> a woman was out with her three friends. They were celebrating graduating from law school. Three, it was like three women, and they were all black. And a woman came up to them, a white woman, said, "Oh, what are you celebrating?" And they said, "Oh, we graduated from law school." They're like, "Wow, all three of you? That's so awesome. That's really impressive." She took that as a slight, as in like she never expected black people to graduate from law school. And it's like, no, you idiot. It's impressive to graduate from law school, period. And it's that kind of victim mentality that resides in people's brains, that they can't even accept a compliment from someone without thinking that there's a backhanded you know, remark to it. And Wow. It's 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 stuff like that yep. that I've become more and more aware of. And even sometimes, you know, I have to question it for myself sometimes. Um, you know, these these microaggressions that they tell you that you're supposed to focus on, and I have to actively not focus because I'm like, these microaggressions are ridiculous. Right? Like if like for example, you were to like, hey bro, how you doing? The microaggression in me would be like, how come he called me, bro? Meanwhile, you probably call everybody, bro. I don't know that. I pretty much do. Like, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's exactly stuff like that where black people are put into this position of always feeling like they're about to be victimized um, or turning a situation that's innocent into be a, a scenario of victimization. Um, you know, the, the trope of, is it because I'm black? Right. It's kind of a trope and it's kind of true that, yeah, we're some people are on edge. Obviously, not all black people. I wouldn't yeah, essentialize that. I, I know it's certainly not, but there is a, yeah. a small percentage of all. And it, a lot of those have just been bombarded with the narrative and it's just kind of there. They've grown up around it. And I, and I sort of understand that. But it yeah, is exactly. it, it is wild when it comes to that. I, um, I have some so many thoughts when it comes to that, how sometimes it's just a. I have a lot of friends, all different backgrounds and everything. And I, um, a lot of them are a lot younger than me. You know, I work with a younger, older, and, you know, I, you know, I try not to ever think about it, but I'm like, I don't want to make, I don't want to say, I, I, I want to say anything that someone can, can misconstrue. It's kind of like, um, the whole new, um, the pronoun thing now. It's like, everybody's going to be <laughs> on the edge trying to figure out how you're supposed to talk to somebody. And, and I haven't had to think about that or anything really. It doesn't really come up, but uh, I know certainly people that are in, college or anything to do with being a professor or anything like that it's they have to they're they're uh, jumping around minefields constantly um yeah. trying to come under attack or something along those lines so let me ask you um i know we don't want to hold you up here for a long long time i just appreciate your time i really do um so yeah, absolutely. talk to me for a few minutes all right just two quick two little points here and then i'm gonna wrap things up with your aunt Anne, which i thought was a great little tell me about your aunt um why the hatred so much for you have an article you have a chapter in here you have a lot of quotes um about of uh, elitists some white some black 
why the hatred toward black conservatives or people who want to speak like you want to speak? Why? I mean, I got a pretty good idea why, but just in your opinion, what is that? Why is it so visceral toward um, folks like you of color, black guy like you that thinks like you do? It's because we go against the ideology. Um, you know, the, the one chapter where I'm talking about poisonous black ideology, it comes in different forms, but essentially we are subservient to the ideology. We are subservient to our race and groupthink. And so veering away from the groupthink makes you a traitor. And so we've, and granted, we haven't, as a population, we haven't always been this way. And that's, right. that's another thing that people don't really realize. But we've adapted to it. Um, I think much of it kind of stems from the civil rights era of feeling like we need to organize as a collective to have some sort of social change. But I think it's only grown and gotten worse. Um, and it's gotten, it's gotten abused and, and taken advantage of. But being socially conservative, um, even though many black people are socially conservative, right. um, they just don't realize it or they wouldn't even call it that. But right. basically st speaking against the ideology or is like speaking against the cult. And right. so, you know, you can get ostracized. One of the things that, that people misunderstand when, um, like when they talk about someone like Larry Elder, for example, sure. um, they say he's not really black. And maybe to you, you're like, what does that, what does that mean? What, didn't the like, LA Times call him the black face of white supremacy? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. But yeah, exactly. But part of it is when they talk about blackness or even whiteness, what they're talking about is not the shade. But they're talking about the ideology. Right. So you can be someone who is white who doesn't believe in what is called whiteness, right? And that is because politically you are not abiding by what they have defined as whiteness, this idea ideological framework of whiteness. The same goes for black. Right. They they have a political stance as to what black is and um if you fall within that political stance, you have blackness. You have up, upheld your bargain of blackness. Blackness is good. Whiteness isn't. And so when when they talk about black conservatives or Republicans or anything like that, what they're talking about is, yeah, they might be black, but they're not really black, meaning they're not really politically black. They're not advocating for things that will benefit black people based off of the ideology of blackness. So it's it's a mind game when you break it down, but it's highly illogical um, and it's very ideological. Yeah, I think it is. And I, I think it comes down to ideology when it comes to that. So it's kind of like when, yeah. uh, of course, Joe Biden and his, you know, whatever you talk about, with, it's hardly worth talking about with him. But um, he, what was the thing he said? If you, you don't vote, you're not voting for me, you ain't black or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I was a black guy or black, it doesn't matter what color you are. If somebody said that, I was like, dude, I don't care who this guy is. I'm not voting for this clown. I mean, this 
that's the most pandering, ignorant comment that anybody can say. And this guy's, we all know, you know, he's been around since the 70s. He's been on every side of the spectrum. He's 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 been dishonest over and over and over and over again. But yet, here we go. Yeah. The media painted the picture to, to to get here where we are. So, um, but um, I, let me yeah. let me add one thing to that. The most telling thing about Joe Biden saying "you ain't black" is actually the response from Charlemagne, who's interviewing him. He doesn't even address it. He no, just keeps going. Right. So he doesn't say, what do you mean by that? Charlemagne didn't address it or Joe didn't? Joe didn't say anything else. Charlemagne didn't say anything? Charlemagne didn't address it. He was, Charlemagne was talking about something in particular and Joe Biden made that response. Charlemagne didn't think like how me and you would have thought, like, what do you mean by that? Like, why would you say that? He didn't even address that. He kept it going to the point that Charlemagne was trying to make and it was never revisited in that, in that interview. And that tells you that that statement coming from him as a Democrat did not bother him. It did not bother him because they agree with it. They they believe that being politically black means being a Democrat. And if it means that an older white guy is telling a a younger black guy that if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, then so be it. Just yeah, okay. You know, I, I never seen the full interview. I did. I honestly didn't remember that it was Charlemagne that yeah. actually did the interview on him. Wow. I, I just, it just, it just boggles the mind. Uh, well, man, I don't want to, I don't want to hold you much longer. I want to give you just a couple minutes to tell one, one particular chapter I read, and there's so many other things we could talk about because um, I want to read. I would love to get, have you back on another time because I just love. We need this needs to be talked about. People are so afraid to talk about it, and it needs to be talked about. And I mean, not just me. I have a lot of black friends that agree exactly how you do, but so many are just, I think, afraid to say it. And I think mm-hmm. that's why I'm so glad that you're hopefully going to give some people some courage uh, to stand up. And to me, as a white guy, older white guy, I don't, I don't even think about it much, but we, I need to show my kids that, hey, there is a better way through all of this. So um, real quick, tell me about your aunt, Anne, and what your aunt, Anne, taught you and got you where you are today. So... Uh, my aunt Anne is, I didn't grow up with my actual grandmother. Um, she had passed away when I was really young. Uh, I don't even remember meeting her, but my aunt Anne, I used to always go to her house during holidays. And uh, she was like my grandmother. That's the best way of kind of putting it. And she meant a lot to me. Um, and I think as I got older and like, especially in my 20s, I had my own kind of thing going on. There were times that, you know, maybe a few years would go by and I didn't come, or maybe like a couple of years didn't go, went by, I didn't come. Um, and it, and it's, it's strange watching someone grow older and older and they look less and less like themselves. Um, but in the book, you know, I detail, basically I saw her um, right before she had passed away. And the reason I talk about my Aunt Anne is because Anybody that went into my Aunt Anne's house, she treated with respect. She was Aunt Anne. She didn't care. Um, her neighbor was, um, was a white woman, and she treated her like a sister. And would come over and, and take care of her and, and get her stuff. And, you know, she didn't treat her any different than anybody else. You know, she loved her. And, right. you know, I would bring people by 
Um, didn't matter what they look like. She treated everybody the same. Yeah. And I, and I, I guess I just wanted to use my Auntie Anna as an example of someone who, who earned people, well, who earned people's respect. Because when they came in her house, she treated them with kindness and they respected her for that. And nobody would dare disrespect her, not because she was some big mean lady, but she was a sweet, kind, funny woman. She was always laughing. Um, even in moments where it doesn't seem like there's anything to laugh at, she would find something to laugh about. Um, I, you know, I can hear her laugh in my head. So, you know, I want, I want people who are reading the book. I want America to be like my, my girl, um, I was about to say grandma, but my aunt Anne's house, you know? Sure. I think that's such a great, um, great point. Just, she was how we want to be, how reasonable we wrote the book. You want to get around this this stuff that we're dealing with now, this, you know, you said victimhood, I'll hold the book up a little bit here so people see it here, black victim to black victor, um, that's where we need to be going, and, and it, it doesn't matter if it's you're black or white, we are trying to be kind and, and, and love each other, Now, I do think most people feel that, hey, I don't have anything to hurt me, I don't, not nothing against anybody, I just want to be kind, I want to move on, I want to work hard, but we have a media and a narrative now that tries to continue to push this ugliness and this darkness and even the people who think it's a little weird don't really have an outlet to speak out about it because, like you said, it's like you're breaking from that ideology. What's wrong with you? You're a traitor. And I think yeah. that's what we're running into now. It seems like that way. But, um, well, you've been an inspiration for me not just, just to start reading again, for goodness sakes. <laughs> and I'm going to keep reading. So whenever I talk to somebody and I come back to you again and you, you know, you probably have another, are you working on another book? Do you have an idea on another book now? Or Yes. Um I'm slowly but surely uh, working on the second book. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing op-eds and stuff like that, so it, it takes away time uh, along with my normal I, job. I, I, I'm falling behind on your, some of your articles from The Federalist. I just was clicking on tonight going, oh, dude, he's got like four of the articles I haven't read. So I got to get back <laughs> on the ball with you, man. Um, but you're quite an inspiration, and you keep doing it. I know you're going to have some pushback. You're, all, you're going to when you speak the truth. I just uh, want to be you're encouraging to me and uh, hopefully those that listen to this will just see just how, you know, what we can do to try to make America better and just don't fall into this uh, trap of what so much of our media and so many of the uh, the elitists are trying to force down our throats. So um, yeah. I thank you for your time. I really do. Uh, Adam, Adam B. Coleman and author of uh, Black Victim to Black Victor. Um, it's a fantastic book. I hope you get it. I'll put some a link to it in my uh, the notes at the end. But um, thank you again, Adam, for your time. And um, thank you have you. a story to tell. And, and God bless you uh, and your family. Okay. Take care.